This episode of the Disney Film Project is sponsored by TouringPlans.com. Head over to TouringPlans.com and use their tools to save yourself time and money when you are at Walt Disney World or Disneyland. You can use the Lines application on your mobile phone, use the Crowd Calendar to figure out which parks to hit which days, or use the Touring Plans to save time and money waiting in line. TouringPlans.com is the sponsor of this episode of the Disney Film Project. people you love us we hope uh and you love the avengers so what would be better todd than coming to see us and see the avengers at the same time uh what would be better see us and see the avengers and eat popcorn with us i got it though do it at disney world disney world better yes we're going to disney world we are all four of us, you, me, Cheryl, Bree, well, you guys are not going very far. But me and Bree are coming there, and on May 19th, that's the first weekend of Star Wars weekends, folks, that Saturday we will be doing a, the first ever Disney Film Project meet. We are going to see Avengers. All four of us will be there. You'll come meet us at the AMC Theaters downtown Disney. Of course, we don't know the movie time yet, but we will announce that as well. So stay tuned to the Twitter, the Facebook page, the podcast. We'll let you know. And you're going to come see us, and you're going to come to the meet. Yes. Come to the meet. We'll watch it in 3D. If you can't have popcorn, our friend Emily at Baby Cakes is right nearby, so you can bring that in. Exactly. It's right over there. Sneak in the cupcakes. Cookie sandwich for the win. There you go. So May 19th. Put it on your calendar. Book your travel now. Meet us at Walt Disney World at the AMC Theater at Downtown Disney, and we're all going to go see Avengers together. It's the first Disney Film Project meet. Don't be late. Look for the meet on PlanCast. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project podcast. This is the program where we discuss the films of the Walt Disney Company, from the very first ones to the most recent ones, to the subsidiaries like Marvel or Touchstone. We cover it all eventually here on this program. I'm Brian Kilpatrick, host of the show and owner, proprietor, and uh, sometimes blogger over at DisneyFilmProject.com, where we do exactly what I just talked about. We talk about Disney movies and shorts and all those fun things, so please go over there and check that out. Joining me, as always, we have the film buffs who make up the the real knowledge of this show. I just kind of talk and make sure that they uh, they know that they – are the ones who are giving the knowledge. So, first of all, we have Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is the chief technical officer at DisneyDrivenLife.com and a blogger at TouringPlans.com. How are you, Mr. Perlmutter? Hamakavula. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine, Ryan. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm I'm very well. Getting getting ready to to hop a plane tomorrow. So, always fun to travel. Yay. Yes. Also joining us this evening, we have Todd's wife, who produces this program and does so quite diligently, uh, editing lots and lots of content down into something that you guys would find palatable. And you can see her travails doing so at, on Twitter, at Cheryl P3, or over at about.me slash Cheryl P3. How are you this evening, Miss Cheryl? I'm doing good, but I just letting you know I was not a very fine, fine fan of this movie. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
You're going to offend the delicate sensibilities of our guest. Normally, we are joined by Miss Brianna Alessio, but she is hard at work trying to, to make some cash so that she can uh, move down to Florida and uh, hang out with the fun and exciting people down there like the Perlmutters and like our special guest star for this episode. You may know him from StudioCentral.com. You may know him from WDW Today podcast. You may know him because you saw him in the park one day and went, who is that guy? <laughs> it's Matt Hotchberg, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everyone. Woot! Yay. How are you, Matt? Great. Thanks for inviting me on the show to talk about such a geeky movie. And Cheryl, I agree with you. It's not the best movie I've ever seen in my life. But any true geek out there will appreciate it nonetheless. Amen. I, I just don't think it's a, you know what? I don't think it's a girl's movie. I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I may be alone in this. Who knows what Bree's going to say. But I really don't think it's a, it's a movie geared toward women. <laughs> It has it has two things that that women generally don't enjoy: British comedy and lots of gunplay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I would sum it up. So, Matt, you uh, you you enjoyed this movie. Uh, tell us about your your. We're talking, of course, about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the 2005 Touchstone film. Uh, tell us about your your experiences with this film. Well, I, I chose the film because, as I alluded to earlier, as a as a true geek, it's one of those things you have to know about. And I really enjoyed the BBC radio program. That's what got me hooked initially. And I tried to read the book, but I got lazy about it. But nonetheless, it's a great series. There's, you know, and, and when the movie was announced and came out in 2005, I was so excited to finally put a visual. I know there was a TV show, but it's not the same. It's like the 80s. I'm, you know, this was like a really, you know, this is going to be the uh, medium to enjoy the Douglas Adams books and, and the radio and everything to, to see this visually. So, um, and you know, it, it was it's not the best movie in the world. I'll admit that, but I do think that if you enjoy the books, the humor is all there. I mean, most of the jokes from the book are are in the uh, are in the film, and I was just compelled to bring this to the attention of all your listeners because I think that the the movie is. I mean, because the books are so classic, we have no choice but to pay homage to it and enjoy the product this year. Because you know, it's it does do a pretty good job of conveying the typical British humor that you alluded to, Ryan. And uh, but I I found it it's entertaining. It's not the best movie, but it's a good popcorn movie. I found it was a good use of an hour and a half, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it's it's I like it. Um... So um, it's very rooted in British comedy because uh, he got hit, Douglas Adams got his start on Monty Python's Flying Circus. Woohoo! Sorry, big Monty Python fan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, it makes sense, Todd, because the um, the humor is very it's very dry, it's very subtle, it's very matter of factly, and you have to pay attention. It's not some movie that'll just you know like it's not wacky antics. Not, well, not necessarily, but uh, mostly it's you know it, it's it's wordplay and and kind of you know some fun. Basically, it is just like Monty Python, that kind of like, you know, that sort of British dry humor. And I love it. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. There, I mean, we could sit here probably and quote half the movie because it's just funny lines that they've come up with. It's not just that, but this is like the geeky geek fest of stories to begin with, right? Like you're saying, I mean, it just, it just brings everything along with it. And Douglas Adams is not just famous here. I mean, he was a script editor on Doctor Who for Tom Baker of all Doctor Who's. So he he's just he goes back through everything. Um, his original 
he once uh, submitted a Doctor Who movie, okay, for production, and it never happened, and that actually became the third book, Life, the Universe, and Everything. Right. Okay, so it's it's just on and on and on. It's, you know, my geek childhood, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah I'm right. I'm right there with you guys. Yeah, because I read the. I read the. I actually didn't hear the radio plays, Matt. So I'm kind of jealous of, of you of that. But I, I grew. I grew up like you guys. I read the books. I just thought them hilariously funny, and just the fact that every time that I've and I have, but I have seen the BBC TV series, and then like you, Matt, when I saw that the movie was being made, I'm like, this is perfect. This is going to be like the chance for this to just be huge. And it did okay at the box office, not huge, but it's uh, what I love about Douglas Adams is that he's told this story in radio, in books, in a TV show, in a movie, and every time he's involved, and he keeps tweaking the story every time to fit the medium. So what's in the movie is different than what's in the books. I mean, the, the basic core is there, but what's in the movie is different from the books, from what I understand is different from the radio plays, definitely different from the TV series. You know, the jokes are tailored to the format that they're in, and I think that's right. just sheer brilliance. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you're right, Ryan. It's, it's such a the, – the movie is loyal to the original subject matter, but it's, it's unique in its own way, like you, like you mentioned. And, you know, I was, as I was watching it, I watched it again to uh, remind myself of the movie before prior to recording this podcast. And, you know, I found myself – thinking about comparing it really to the to the radio series which I'm the most familiar with and even so the books and you you notice that like you know a lot of the scenes in the movie are condensed compared to what you'll find in the book or in the radio show but I think they they still it still manages to really stay loyal. It feels like it's Douglas Adams' work, right? It's not like some guy who's ripping it off or trying to make it his own or something like that. It it, it feels like the guy made it. And we should mention by the way Douglas Adams died in what 2001, I think. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was shopping the screenplay for like years, from what I understand. Um, but it's his, it's his work. It just for whatever reason, it never got around to being made. But uh, it definitely has his his uh you know fingerprint on it, and you can definitely feel it. I, I know one reason why it didn't get made. Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> There's a lot of issues with it, right? From when it was, the screenplay was initially made to when it actually came out in '05. Yeah, no, uh, well, like, Dan Aykroyd was originally one of the, and Bill Murray being considered, and then Dan Aykroyd submitted the script for Ghostbusters to Ivan Reitman, who had the film rights to the to the story, and then just bailed on it. Huh. Well, hey, we got this movie and Ghostbusters, so we all win. <laughs> and we got Spaceballs. There you go. <laughs> I will mention, there is, a, there is a Disney's MGM Studio connection with this film. And that is that the uh, the escape pod that they leave from to go to uh, Magrathia, I believe, is was on the backlot tour for a while. I mean, it might actually still be there, if I'm not mistaken. It's a red ship, kind of looks a little funky. It's huge and little small engines. Anyway, it was on. The, yeah. It is or was on the backlot tour. Yeah, I think they try to pass out as the little Einstein ship. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <did. laughs> nice. There's more, more synergy that way, right? Yep. I, I like how you know how you're saying that um, how it was constantly evolving. I mean, there's a whole character in the movie that isn't even in any prior version of the story, which is the John Malkovich character, the Homa Kavula character. Ah, yeah. yes. <laughs> 
I mean, they're great. I, it's it's funny you mention the characters, Todd, because there are some great characters that are, obviously they're made, you know, in, in a lot of the books and everything like that. But you know, every character is so unique and different. And even even Arthur Dent, the the what is he, the protagonist, right? That's what he. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's the. I mean, he is. You know, that that typical like worrisome British C three PO meets old man. You know, uh, kind of mentality, <laughs> and. You know, every every character is so unique and so interesting, and it's like you're almost you can never tell what they're going to say, which is what makes it so interesting and 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 funny. And I really enjoy just you know the characters. And I mean, how many times have we come up in in our own lives and quoted the film or the book or whatever you want to call it, you know, whichever medium, uh, and you know, because it's been relevant to something that we're doing. Uh, it just goes back to you know the content of it, and you know, it, it's a shame that if you. Uh, if you haven't seen, if you see the film, that's great, whatever. But you really should take the opportunity to read the book. To I think listen to the radio show is my favorite one. The BB, the BBC television show, Ryan. I watched a little bit of it. But it was too dated for my taste. Um, I'm kind of funky like that, you know, kids these days, all that jazz. But um, I do think you should take the if you like the movie in the least bit, explore the other mediums because they're much better. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think if you like the movie, if you like the humor of the movie, not necessarily the story, you should read the books. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember uh, listening to the radio br- thing on um, cassette tape back when I was younger. Yes, cassette tape. <laughs> what? Yeah. What, what is that? Uh, I used to stick them on pencils and spin them around. Remember? Wait. Let's oh, look. yeah. <laughs> let's ask the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide what a cassette was. <laughs> if yeah. only we had Stephen Fry here to uh, to narrate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I, I just like that Stephen Fry did it because all throughout the entire time that he was shopping it around, Douglas Adams actually wanted Stephen Fry to voice the guide, so he got, you know, posthumously he got that one wish. Yeah, Todd, the guide is really the highlight for me. I mean, the film is kind of, you know, it's not the greatest medium. We've established that. But the guide is worth seeing the, the movie in itself. Because basically throughout the whole film, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will break in from time to time and explain certain things, like who certain alien species are, what planet they're on, even random things that are really not really relevant, but they're just funny. And it's the most entertaining thing to me is what the book has to say the entire time. Uh, and I really look forward to that. And you're right, the voice was Stephen Fry's voice is spot on because as someone who would listen to the BBC series, it's the same exact voice, which is awesome. It's great when you have that kind of uh, continuity to any series that you're trying to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, and, and Stephen Fry is like one of the most famous people on the planet Earth, I think. <laughs> I don't know how else you describe it. I mean, he's got – he's an actor, a screenwriter, an author, a playwright, a journalist, a poet, a comedian, a television presenter, and a film director. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> but what does he do in his spare time? Tap dance. Disney World podcasts. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. He, he's, you know, who I, where I recognize his voice from, and this is going to be sad. My kids enjoy the uh, the game Little Big Planet. Oh yeah, and he's the narrator on that game. So I'm listening to this, and I'm going, "This is the guy that told me how to make a poppet on Little Big Planet. This is great." Because <laughs> it's the same dry humor that he uses in narrating that game that he uses as the guide, which is fantastic to me. Matt, do you have the DVD? No, I uh, I just have the uh, 
another means of acquiring films for short notice. <laughs> you may want to get the DVD, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, it has tons of additional Stephen Fry stuff on it, like like guide entries that were not in the movie or anything like that, but that he recorded and they they trimmed them down. Oh, cool! And just like general joke tracks that he did and stuff like that. So you might actually enjoy getting it. I had seen when the movie first came out on DVD, you know, it was 06 maybe, maybe even back in 05. I did rent it and I remember watching some special features. I remember there were spoofs in the end when they're trying to rescue Trillian uh from the Vogoths, the uh the there was a a, a like a like a they they kind of like not a flub reel, but you know, um there there was a bunch of series of funny things that they did on the thing. And that was one special feature I remember from the DVD. Yeah, they made up deleted scenes. Like they yeah. said, they were deleted scenes, and they weren't really even scenes that were ever made for the movie. They just filmed them just for the DVD. Yeah, it's great. I agree. You should. Uh, I do remember the DVD being good, but I wonder: is it the same DVD, Todd, that they had from the original release on DVD, or have they updated it? Um, I don't know. I like you rented it back then, so I just remember yeah. that all that stuff was on the DVD. Yeah, it's it's a fun movie to have. I mean, especially probably you can get it for like five bucks these days anyway. So I think for that, I agree with you. It's probably worth getting. The the other thing is that the trailers for the movie were actually made up as guide entries. So it, it, the, the movie actually won a lot of awards for the trailers because they didn't do the typical trailers where, you know, in a world and, and with all the crazy, you know, cut scenes and everything. It was all guide entries that explained some, you know, random plot point of the movie because by the time the movie came out, everybody knew what Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was. So that all they had to do was basically show that they were getting the humor across. And that's what sure. they did with the trailers is they used Fry's voice as the guide to kind of show you, you know, here's the Hitchhiker's Guide to whatever. And they, I think they ended up doing about ten different versions. Should we, uh, should we explain what the, the general plot of the movie for people who aren't unfamiliar with the film? Oh, uh, we, we, we'll do more than that, Matt. Okay. <laughs> we'll explain it in intricate detail down to the last minute. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, in every version of this story, it, it all begins with Arthur Dent, that you mentioned, who you mentioned earlier, which is Martin Freeman, uh, who you might know from the British version of The Office. Uh, what else? Help me out, guys. What else has Martin Freeman been in? He's been in lots of movies. He'll be in The Hobbit coming up. It Go also ahead. begins with dolphins. It, it, it does. It does have dolphins. This is very true. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a hilarious beginning to the film, by the way. Yeah, it, a special number written just for the movie, and it is absolutely hysterical. <laughs> yeah. The idea being that the dolphins are the, the most evolved uh, animals on the planet, and they all decide to leave because they know the Earth's going to be destroyed. And the opening credit sequence is a song where they are singing So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. <laughs> Which, of course, is, is, a, is a take on something from the book where the book just kind of explained briefly that dolphins were the second most uh, – well, th- humans are the third most uh, smartest species and dolphins being the second. And they kind of see – number one is revealed later on. Yes. But, uh, but the dolphin – and all they say basically is that they kind of like explain that the dolphins tried to communicate with humans that the world was going to end and instead left a note saying, so long, thanks for all the fish. And the movie, to its credit, one of the best things about the movie is that they expanded on this, this huge musical number, which is hilarious. I really enjoyed it. You don't even have to know anything about the book. It's just funny to watch it because, yes. uh, you know, the, right. the, the lyrics are just amazingly funny. Yes. And the bit with the, the bit with, what I liked is uh, he flip-flopped the other thing that happens in the beginning of the book, which is the bit with the whale. Because they actually, in the very beginning of the book, yeah. they mentioned that the whale disappears. Right. Yes. Yes. And then, yes. and then it comes up later in the book. And here they don't even bother mentioning it. It just comes up at the end of the movie. 
In, in quite the hilarious way, no less. Yes. Very well but done. The, the story, like I said, centers around Arthur Dent, right, who come, wakes up one morning to find out that his house is about to be demolished to make way for a bypass. And this is the basic story of every incarnation of this of Hitchhiker's Guide. His friend Ford Prefect comes over, and even though Arthur is trying to stop the bulldozers from getting his house, and I've, I've seen it done three different ways, but basically Ford convinces the people who are about to bulldoze the house that they themselves should stop themselves while he takes Arthur to the pub. I actually thought in the movie it wasn't quite as good as it is in the books where he convinces the, the lead person from the bulldozing team to lay in front of the bulldozer himself. I, I always enjoyed that part. <laughs> but uh, in this case, Ford just drags him to the pub where they have a pint of beer. Ford explains that he is actually an alien. He is going to take Arthur off of Earth because Earth is about to be destroyed. And in fact, that is exactly what happens as a alien race called the Vogons show up and destroy Earth to make way for a bypass. Do you see the similarities there? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's political commentary. Let's let's face it. That's a lot of British humor is political commentary. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> you know what's interesting also is that how much in the first book, as I recall, a lot of time is spent on the Vogon ship, and here they're only on there for about what five ten minutes max you know they get the poetry yeah. thing and then they're off the ship and on to the next scene and i just remember the fogons are a major part of the first uh book just it just seemed like it went on and on and on the, the captain playing with his ships in the bathtub and so forth and so anyway so it's interesting how they chose to really although the fogons do make quite a bit of appearances later on in the in the in the movie it's just you know interesting how they that part is significantly shorter than i remember in the other mediums yeah, and I think the Vogons are the biggest change from the other mediums to this because they actually play a bigger part in the rest of the story, whereas in the other mediums they don't as yeah, much. You, right, exactly. Yeah. So the, the Ford and, and Arthur hitchhike, literally, on the Vogon fleet, which is the aliens who have come to destroy, who come and actually succeed in destroying the Earth. Uh, they get discovered, and then that leads to their torture scene. Uh, which is consistent, again, across all the different versions of the story where the Vogons read them poetry. Which is yeah. the second or third worst poetry in the galaxy? Uh, second worst. Second yes. worst. The, the first belonged to a woman in Sussex and now no longer counts because there is no more Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think in the movie, though, it's a different... I, I know that joke. It's, I remember that from the, the audio guide. I think it's a different joke, though, who the number one is. I could be wrong on that, but I want to say uh, it's someone else in the movie, having just seen it. I think you're right. I think, it, I think it actually changes by the, the time, each time that they, they, they do the joke. Oh No, actually, Todd's right. I'm sorry. The very worst poetry in the universe was written by Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Sussex. Thankfully, it was destroyed when the Earth was. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. So they're, they're tortured with the Vogon poetry, thrown out of an airlock, but then all of a sudden are picked up by a starship. And I, I quite enjoyed the next scene because it's the two of them in the starship as sofas. <laughs> <laughs> you can that's tell a, that's only funny to us because Cheryl's not laughing. It's also a reference to um, – in the original book because in the original – I mean, the radio show, right? Because Marvin, when he talks about how smart he is, makes this comment that he's 50,000 times smarter than any human or about 30 billion times smarter than a living sofa. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a joke being fed back into the story. 
Gotcha. I don't know. Living sofas, I've heard, are quite smart. And Elita. <laughs> I would. Ha- I mean, they're living sofas, right? Yeah. The one in Pee Wee Herman was pretty funny. <laughs> See? Yeah. See? Smart sofa. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Fair enough. So the, the starship uh, is called the Heart of Gold, and aboard it is Zaphod Beeblebrox, who is the president of the galaxy. Uh, and he has some relation to Ford. He, I, think, I believe they call him his semi-half-brother, but then they change it a, a few times throughout. But they are in some way related. They shared three mothers. That was the... Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, and it, also aboard is... Um, so we should, we should call out that uh, Ford is played by most deaf... Uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox is played by Sam Rockwell, uh, who's doing his own political commentary in his performance. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was say, and that's a that's a difference right there because uh, in the Zaphod Beeblebrox is kind of I read as I was reading uh, afterwards, it's kind of a take on Elvis and George W. Bush. Yeah, and uh, that's obviously something that wasn't in the other mediums. Um, and it's an interesting political commentary, to say the least, if you watch the film. And I think it's safe to say that um, that the, the writers leaned a little left on that one. <laughs> yes, I would say that's, that's very safe to say. Did, did anybody – so you, you guys are geeks like me. Did anybody see a little bit of uh, this performance when they watched Iron Man 2 with Sam Rockwell? <laughs> oh. I, The way he carries himself, right? The walking and everything is exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, when you watch it, because I watched Iron Man 2 just shortly before this, before I watched this movie, and I went, oh, he's playing the same guy with a little bit different voice. (laughs) (laughs) Every character is just safe on Beeblebrox with a different take. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Marvin is also our Star Wars connection. He is. So oh, Mar- yes. Yeah, because Marvin is, uh, well, he's voiced by Alan Rickman. It's actually Warwick Davis who's in the uh, in the uh, outfit there, or the robot body, or whatever you would call that thing. <laughs> and we would know him from Todd? Oh, so he is uh, Ewok from, he is, is Warwick the Ewok, I'm sorry, Wicked, Wicked the Ewok from, um, or Wicked W. Warwick uh, from uh, Return of the Jedi. He also played, he was also in a Yoda action suit in Phantom Menace. And we should also mention, I'm not sure if it's related to Marvin, but in general, the Jim Henson Company did provide puppetry for the film. Yeah, they did. Another okay. Disney connection for you. Yeah. There you go. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> and and War, War Davis is a frequent uh, Star Wars Weekends guest, correct, man? That's right. There you go. See how it all comes together, people? <laughs> so the other person aboard the ship is Trisha McMillan, who is played by Zoe Deschanel, uh, who Arthur has been pining over. We see this briefly when he's talking to Ford in the pub. He went to a party, met her, chatted her up, and then all of a sudden this guy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, uh, showed up out of nowhere and kind of stole her away, and Arthur's been pining away for her. And randomly, she is on this ship. It's actually not random, but we, we can talk about that uh, when we talk about what is going on with the ship. So the four of them are together, along with Marvin, and we find out that what's going on is Zaphod has stolen the ship. Even though he's president of the galaxy, and he could have probably just taken it, uh, <laughs> he stole it anyway. Kidnapped himself. He does. Yes. 
And I'd like to point out for, for Cheryl that Zoe Deschanel is on the, in the movie, which every girl loves, evidently. So there you go. There's your girl connection for you, Cheryl. The only, only point she gets, Matt, is she's vegan. <laughs> there you go. So you can, you, can, you can at least enjoy that aspect of the film. It appeals, it appeals to everybody. Vegans, girls, everyone. And she, was, she was really good on Elf. I liked, I liked her in Elf. Who didn't? Yes. Awesome movie. So we, what we find out, the backstory that we get is that Zaphod has stolen the ship because he wants to find the planet of Magrathea. And we get the backstory on the planet of Magrathea, which is that years and years and years and years ago, and I mean lots of years ago, Billions. We're making Matt pronounce. We're making after you pronounce Magrathia, any any cities. We're making Matt pronounce. <laughs> Magrathia. Oh, it helps when I hear it already. See when it's geek stuff, he's 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 got it down. Yeah. <laughs> I know everything. <laughs> Towns of Wisconsin. Sorry, not gonna not gonna work. But F- fake cities. Planet, he's fictional got. planets. I'm all over that. Magrathia, <laughs> Earth. Uh, what are the other planets in the <laughs> Jupiter? <laughs> so, m- millions of years ago, the inhabitants of the planet of Magrathia built this huge supercomputer called Deep Thought. And they asked Deep Thought what the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything was. And Deep Thought took what? I believe it was seven million years to answer? Yep. According to the movie? Yep. And. The answer was, gentlemen? 42. Yeah, 42. Which, if you're interested, you can Google that question, and it'll give you back 42. You can ask Siri the question, and it'll give you back 42. It's a very, very geeky question. So the answer to anything you never know is always the answer 42, because it is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Absolutely. But unfortunately, they're lacking the The question. question. Yes, because because you can't because they never actually formulate a question of deep thought. They they just say it's the ultimate question. They never say what the question actually is because they don't know. Right. <laughs> so so deep thought tells them they have to build another computer, a bigger computer, yeah. uh, in order to get the question. That's right. And and that's where the where everything where the backstory ends. So Zaphod is going to Magrathia to see if he can figure out the answer to the question. He apparently did not pay very close attention to the backstory. No. But it admittedly he's he's only half a brain at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Which is important to note because we find that we we in this segment see that uh as Todd mentioned, Zaphod has split his brain between two heads, one that pops up from under his chin uh, and one that's on top, which is kind of disturbing. Yeah, think think a Pez dispenser. <laughs> that's, that's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> Pez dispenser heads, which is disturbing. Yep. So the way that they're going to get there is through this ship, which uses the improbability drive. So the Heart of Gold uses the improbability drive, which means they push a button – and it basically passes through every segment of space at any given time, transforming everything in its path to something or other, and ends up somewhere. But they don't know where it's going to end because the results are improbable. So basically, Zaphod's plan is to keep pushing the button until he gets to Magrathia. I feel like the movie didn't do as good of a job of conveying the joke with the improbability drive that the yeah. book and the radio series did because – in the radio series, especially, like every the butt of every joke is that it's improbable, not impossible. Um, 
and they only I think did that like really there was the the couch which we already alluded to, and then them being balls of yarn that was another one, uh, which was actually I think the funniest thing when when uh, yes. when when he throws up in yarn, <laughs> <laughs> and then again towards the end when they're trying to elude the um, the planetary defenses, but it's not like the joke. I felt the joke in the books was a lot better done and a lot more funny. But anyway, just a point of contention. They don't no, really ex- they don't explain the drive very well. That's part of the problem, right? I mean, the book yeah. goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs explaining the drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think this whole middle section of the movie, frankly, is where the movie falls down versus all the other incarnations. So I think yeah, like I think the, right. it, it, it starts very strong and it ends very strong, but it's in between. And I think it's probably because they're trying to condense a, you know, how many hours was the radio play? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, like eight, ten hours. You're right about that. Yeah. Versus, and then a novel into, you know, a 110-minute movie. Uh, I mean, something's going to suffer. Right? Yeah, you're you're right, you're right. Um, and they did a decent job considering, because it is a very tall order. If you listen to the book, read the or read the book, listen to the radio show, you're going to see there is a lot of stuff that they cut out and condense. So they did a decent job, but I think you're right, Ryan. I think it really, the middle of the movie, I, you know, as you say that, the more, you, the more I think about it, I think the more you're right. The, the, the beginning is really strong. The end is strong. Uh, the whole Magrathea thing at the end is, is great. I just think it's the whole uh, Vogon thing in the middle that's just yeah. dull. Yeah, because that's this is where it deviates the most from all the other stuff, right? We talk, we 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 heard Todd earlier allude to Huma Kavula, uh, who in in this in this movie was the person that Zaphod ran against for president of the galaxy, and they go and see him on on a planet that they get to from using the improbability drive, and this is the part. Although John Malkovich is perfectly creepy as Huma Kavula, and the the jokes in this segment are, are pretty funny. This is the part that I thought just dragged the most. It's just, it, I, I didn't really understand what the point of having this in the film was. Yeah, you're right. The, uh, I think, I think there was one joke that was kind of funny, um, which is how they pray. I don't remember exactly how, I just remember that was funny. The, uh, because they, they sneeze and then say, bless you. And yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's yes. tied to the guide entry that when they hit the, when they hit the improbability drive and they are on their way, there's a guide entry that while they're in, while they disappear. Yeah. And it's, and it talks about how, about all the ways that the universe views God. Yes, that's right? a great one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and it's very interesting because it also goes into all the ways that God views the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, it ends up in this pla- describing this planet where um, they worship God as uh, something that flew out of a giant creature's nose, as the universe as something that flew out of a giant creature's nose. And so then they go to this church that Huma Kavula does and it's because that's what they're that's why they sneeze is because of that whole concept so it ties right back into the novel yeah and so he goes bless you and then he throws it all away it's kind of like (laughs) (laughs) if you get if you get nothing else from this podcast it's that if you watch the movie you can just watch the guide entries it's worth it alone never mind the actual content of the film absolutely but so Huma Kavula wants the point of view gun, which we don't really know what that is until we until we get to it later. I want uh, point of view gun. <laughs> I knew you would. I, <laughs> I want to try to get to your point of view for this podcast. Hey, Todd and I are very much in touch with our feminine feelings. The gun would have little to no effect on us because we are in touch with how women think. I am a delicate flower. <laughs> <laughs> 
If there's anything I want you to take away from this podcast, that would be it right there. <laughs> <laughs> but so they're le- as they're leaving the planet, the Vogons come back, uh, which again is this is the major deviation from from all the other medium. Is the Vogons are chasing uh, Zaphod through the universe, and uh, in th- in this case, they are trying to recover him. They manage to take Trillian or Trisha hostage. And we then spend the next several parts of the movie uh, on a travel to the Vogue Sphere uh, because Arthur wants to go there and rescue Trisha. But it's not like a daring rescue. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. Trillian, did the chat program exist back when this movie was made? Oh, okay. So the the instant messaging app is in fact named after the character from the movie. Okay. Okay. Just so you know. There you um, go. Nerd alert. By the way, my favorite thing about, about Trillian is is I like the 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 description of her name because obviously her name is Trisha McMillan, but they're calling her Trillian, and she goes, she shortened it because it sounded more spacey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think, uh, Ryan, what you alluded to earlier, this part, while it has some redeeming moments, the you know, don't think aspect of it, but... It, this is really the dullest part of the film, and if you need to go to the bathroom, this would be a good time to do it because you're not missing out on much. Right. Well, because the whole joke about the Vogons is, again, it's political commentary, is that they can't do anything without forms signed in triplicate and gone through a quite another elaborate process that is the funniest part of the Vogons, which is the guide entry telling you about them. Yeah, and they have to be buried in soil for like three months or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Basically making fun of bureaucracy. And so the way that the guys are able to rescue uh, Trillian is basically by filling out a form. (laughs) Which is a funny joke. Not an interesting visual for a movie. (laughs) Well, that's because they filled out... Well, first they had to have... Okay, this is the one section of the movie that I actually thought was decent. Because... They had to have Zaphod there so they could cut the line. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, yeah. and then they had him so they could fill out the form, but then they filled out the wrong color form, and then they need to re- refill the form with the right color. We should mention, by the way, we haven't mentioned one character yet. Well, we've alluded to him, but uh, it's probably the best character in the whole film, um, and one that, again... Uh, it's worth just hearing his lines alone, and that's Marvin the Robot, who is the, uh, I guess, I don't know what you'd call him, on what his role is on the ship, but he's the servant, I guess, we want to call him? The butler. Uh, butler, like, but, he's, yeah, but the he, butler. Has a, he, he has a personality to him. Like, they, they assign all these robots evidently, like, pro, uh, human personalities, and his is, like, manic depressive. So everything he says is just, it's like Eeyore, but, like, ten times more down like think of like you or if you just drank all day long like that's kind of like things that he says (laughs) actually so there's there's this one thing that they that they that in the book it's mentioned a lot but never never specified until a later book as to what the serious cybernetics company is okay but if if you remember this growing up, that was like a huge part of the whole story and everything. Because like everything in the galaxy was made by this one group, including the guide, and yeah. Ford worked for the company as the as you know, and on and on and on. It's all about it. Um, but this is right back to the original thing. Is 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 the the bit about Marvin is all 
original stuff. It's not nothing new other than his look, basically. Yeah. Um, right, right. Then he's he's a genuine people personality, <laughs> and and what's essentially happened is because he's an android with an artificial intelligence, and because his brain, like I said earlier, is is so large that he and he never can use more than the tiniest portion of it to do anything because nobody's smart enough to ask him anything difficult. Okay, is so what happens is, is he he's become manic depressive and bored. All right, so this is a combination of the two. Is nothing excites him, nothing wows him. He can't stand anything. He doesn't understand why he exists. Yeah. It's just his comments, his side comments, everything that's going on is is hilarious in itself. And one of my favorite things to say, which is, you know, this will all end in tears. I just know it. Um, <laughs> it's just something he says all the time. It's like his catchphrase. Cheryl? I have two points. One, Matt, now you have me down, down, now they have a good theory as to why there's no alcohol in the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> you're a gay drug. Um, two, <laughs> um, did you name the Marvin from the official guide after this Marvin? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, maybe. I mean, obviously, a lot of the jokes you make with the unofficial guide is related to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I wonder if we did. Honestly, Carol, I don't know the answer because we've taken it for granted for this long, but I guess it has to be, right? Why else would we come up with that name? No, it can't be too a coincidence. Not, I'm saying not yes. that you guys aren't geeks or anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we can't, I try to sneak in as many um, Hitchhiker's Guide references as possible. And I did enjoy, by the way, going back again to the beginning of the film, when they show the book, kind of like after the opening scene, well, I guess the opening two scenes, um, when they show the 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 Hitchhiker's Guide, they play a a, a a variation of the Eagles' riff, which is the theme song the uh, that you'll that you hear in the radio programs that I'm most familiar with. And I thought that was a really cool thing that they managed to include that in the film as well. So again, yeah. another great callback to uh, some of the older stuff. It's also in the miniseries that they put on TV. In case you ever want to ca- grab a copy of that, there you go. It's uh, I forget what the song is called. Uh, I don't know if I have a copy of it. I don't know which one it is, but it's a, it's you an eagle song. Call and <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Anyway, no, go ahead. Don't do that. He'll start singing it, and then we'll never. <laughs> never <laughs> it's a great song. Anyway, I enjoy it. I was just gonna let you go. I was just gonna let you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this. We pick it up once they once they rescue Trilly, and then we get back to the to the whole point of the movie, which is them trying to get to Magrathea to figure out what's going on, which leads to the very funny uh, Magrathean defense system, which I just kind of roll on the floor laughing every time I see it in each of the different incarnations because like it's so if if you know if you know British comedy, it is exactly like other British comedy because it's. Basically, they're apologizing for the fact that they're not home, but they're going to blow you up now. <laughs> I, also, that, that it's like, we're going to launch two thermonuclear devices at you right now in the hands of the thing, blah, 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 and then throw it at them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, of course, this brings us one of the best jokes, which we, I think, Ryan, you alluded to earlier, which is the whale. Yes, Todd, Todd and I are, are fans of the whale. <laughs> The, yes. The, the, so basically, here's the thing, right? Is that to avoid the thermonuclear device, right? They have this big argument about it, it kicking the drive off again, 
Okay, because and because they're already on Magrathia, so they're concerned that if they kick the drive off, that they will leave Magrathia and then they will never get back again. Okay, right. But this is the infinite improbability drive, which means that something improbable is bound to happen. So what actually happens is that they go nowhere. But strangely, because of the effect where everything converts to something else, one of these thermonuclear devices becomes a bowl of petunias. <laughs> and the other one becomes a sperm whale. Yes. And <laughs> and, uh, and you get to you get to learn what both think while they fall to their uh, their utter doom to the planet Magrathia below. <laughs> Which that for me was the moment that was most like the books, right? Because in the books, there's all kinds of little these little side things that don't relate to the main plot that are just like two or three pages of diversionary. Just hilarious yeah. jokes, tangent jokes, basically, right? Right, right. And this this is really the, the the longest one in the movie. There's a few, but for the most part, this is the longest one in the movie because we spend a good couple minutes with that whale as he plummets <laughs> to the earth. I, yeah, I kind of describe it as the the whale has this life affirming consciousness moment. Yeah, <laughs> where he tries to figure out the world. Like he he basically comes into existence like oh. What is this? Oh, this must be air that's flowing past me, past my tail. Yes, that's, that's it. And he comes up with that. He basically defines his own existence before plummeting to the ground and dying. Um, and and rumor is that the fail whale from Twitter is based on this. Could be. Yeah, I would that's believe the, it. Yeah, as I watched the movie, I was thinking about it. and I googled it, and some people said it might have been the case. So that's my theory. And then if you're not cracking up enough at that point, then they point out that the only thing that the Petunias thought on their way down to the, on their way to the fall is, oh, no, not again. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Stephen Fry and his guide voice goes on to, to say something along the lines of, and of course, if we understood why the Petunias thought that, perhaps we would understand more about the universe as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is actually true. <laughs> Uh, but when they finally get to the planet's surface, Zaphod, Ford, and Trillian go to find Deep Thought, whereas Arthur uh, refuses to go through the portal until it's too late. And then he he meets my favorite character, uh, Slart of oh, Artfast. Love that name. <laughs> yeah, which which I remember correctly, uh, Slarty Bartfast is was was the name was come up by Douglas Adams to it was supposed to be a name that if you said it quickly and didn't hear it, you would think it's dirty, but it's actually just. You know, it's innocuous. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's just—it's a great name. I wish, if if I could, I would have named one of my kids Slarty Bartfest. <laughs> I'm sure that <laughs> would go over well in your it. household. Wait—that's Gabriella's Hebrew name, I bet. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's like I can do it still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, Slarty Bartfest is played by Bill Nye, who yes. played Davy Jones in the Pirates movies. He's been in. He's in Love Actually. What my wife and I determined the other day, we were watching a random movie that he showed up in, which was a fabulous movie, and I don't remember what it was at the moment. But what we determined the other day is that he does not do bad movies, even if he only has a two-minute part. It's going to be a good movie, and this one's not bad. It's just yeah. yeah. And, and the whole scene with with Slardy Bartfast and uh, Arthur with and uh, yeah Arthur Dent. I'm getting characters confused. Um, I think it's something that probably. Douglas Adams would would not have the reason probably why the movie wasn't created earlier is I think he wanted a scene that was coming up with him to be 
you know, true to the nature of the book that we probably all envisioned anyway, when they bring you to the uh, Megrathia uh, planet building floor and, and the incredible visuals that you see there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really the payoff for the movie is this entire scene, basically. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's hard to describe, but anyway, the the idea is that what what the Magrathians apparently do besides build computers that give the answer to the universe but not the question <laughs> is build planets. And uh, basically, because at the beginning of the movie, the Earth is destroyed, okay? And what we learn in this scene is that Somehow, um, we, we, well, you, you should by this point be coming to the realization that the planet Earth actually was important, okay, and that it should not have been destroyed, and it was destroyed because Zephad was half a brain, <laughs> <laughs> and um, basically they are rebuilt, so because the two Magrathians that are left Okay, or three. I guess there are more than that because this guy's working on the planet. That's that's where it gets unclear to me. Yeah. It's the, I, um, are the two that are left, or the two that were in charge of the whole thing in the first place, building the deep thought computer and everything like that, have requested that the Earth be rebuilt. Okay, and so they are so they are rebuilding the Earth from its backup. <laughs> <laughs> Which is and it's and so they are they're they're flying over Earth Mark II as it's being built, and I I guess it's flying okay I, like it's 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 hard to believe but like you were saying Matt this scene is like exactly what is described in the book which is the scary scary part about it, except that they leave out the dinosaur stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, basically, it's it's kind of like the Monsters Inc. door scene, but on a grander scale. Yeah, I don't even know how to yeah. describe it because. It, they're on this conveyor belt thing, but the, it's building the conveyor belt as they go. As they go, yeah. <laughs> but uh, actually, I was disappointed that one of my favorite jokes did not make the movie in this part, and that's the uh, – how do you pronounce it? The fjord joke? Well, it does get made. Yeah, it, it gets made, but it's not nearly as it's good. Not as, it's, not as, it's not as obvious as it is in the book, in the radio show. Yeah, in the book, the guy wins an award for it, and he's very proud, and he's mentioned that many, many times that he won an award for Fjords. Anyway, it's, I guess it was – I didn't, I didn't catch it when, if they did mention it then. Yeah, he, what happens is he mentions it twice. He mentions it uh, as they're boarding. He mentions that, you know, have, do you know about – have you ever been to Norway? I know this – do you know what a fjord is or something? I don't even know how to pronounce the word either. I say, I say fjord, but I know that's not the right <laughs> pronunciation. Um, and he goes through the whole thing. And But you're right because in the book he talks about redesigning – about he decided to just redesign them slightly to a point where nobody would notice in the in yeah. Earth or yeah. something like that. He goes through this whole side thing. And uh, it's it it's very funny, you know. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, back at the Ponderosa, uh, Zaphod, <laughs> Ford, and Trillian are going to deep thought when they find out that uh, Zaphod again did not listen to the backstory very well, and ask Deep Thought what the question is, the ultimate question, and it's revealed that Deep Thought uh, has actually been sitting there and watching TV for the last several million years. Uh, and instead designed another computer to do this, which we find out was Earth. Uh, but Zephod does ask, or is prompted by Ford, rather, to ask for the point-of-view gun, and then we get to see what the point-of-view gun does, which, as Cheryl alluded to, was designed, according to the guide, by housewives who wanted to, 
some way to end arguments other than you just don't understand, and they came up with the point of view gun where you, when you shoot the person uh, while you are holding the point of view gun, they instantly see your point of view. <laughs> which is a gr- which is a hilarious bit, by the way, with uh, when they use yes. the gun on um, on Zaphod and and Ford. Um, just some. It's it, it's just great. I mean, it, you know, it's an old joke that that men don't understand women, but I just thought it, they really pulled this off quite well. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. And it's also this is where I feel like the movie actually takes um, it, 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 not a turn. I wouldn't say, but so this movie has much more emotional depth than in the other incarnations because of the romance between Arthur and Tricia. Which in the books is very light. I mean, there's there's very little of it. You know, he's obviously in love with her, but there's not a whole lot of connection there, and there's not a whole lot going on. Right. Here, it's like that's the core part of the film as the two of them are falling in love, and this is where you see her despair at the fact that Earth has been destroyed, and that you know she probably picked the wrong guy in Zaphod and all that kind of stuff. Lots of emotional depth that's just not there in some of the other. I thought that was the weakest part of the film, to be honest. Um, well, other than the, the whole middle part, but I just thought, like, I just never bought the whole love story <laughs> because she didn't seem interested in him at all until she kind of realized that basically the only reason she, to me, that she got interested in him again is simply because all the other humans are gone and he is literally the last man on earth. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, if she doesn't choose him, then she's gonna be a, she's gonna be a spinster for the rest of her life, I guess. Oh, yeah, I thought. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, so I thought I'd... that it Go was ahead. she. She. I, I agree with you, Matt. I think she was not. She thought he wasn't really interested or on the same page as her, right? But I think what she realizes throughout the movie is, especially after the shower scene, which is not yeah. what it sounds like when you haven't seen the movie, folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> Very peachy. There's, there's um, he where he has the conversation with her, and she um she starts to realize right then that. He's he is in fact interested in her, and he is in fact more adventuresome than he plays than he plays himself as not being. So, yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah, it just didn't. I didn't. I wasn't sold on that whole thing, and quite frankly, it just didn't do anything for me. But nonetheless, it was you know, I mean, it's still nice at the end that they you know they get together, and that's great, good old you know family film. But uh, you know, it, I thought they. I, I mean, I think I I think Ryan that they should have stuck with the book thing where it played it down a little bit more. I mean, they, I think in some cases like this, it's better to keep it subtle. Like, you know, maybe there's something going on, but don't, you don't necessarily have to wrap a bow around it and, you know, make it all fancy. Anyway, that's just my opinion. I think, I think there was probably a middle ground between the way they did it here and the way it's in the book. Cause like in the books and, and some of the radio plays and things, they don't get together at all. Like, I yeah. mean, they're not even, it's not even a consideration. It's just, she's kind of like, yeah, I left. What's deal with it, dude. You know, <laughs> you know, there's no there's no romance at all. I think here they go a little bit overboard, and I think that's why the middle portion of the film doesn't work. I think the chemistry between Martin Freeman and Zoe Deschanel is pretty much non-existent. Yes, yes, yes. I think, and I think that's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah, it's just it's just you know the film company. We need to have a love story because you know every good film has to have a love story, and right. I think you're right, Ryan. They probably could have just done without it and just kept more faithful to the book. But whatever, it's in there. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's an American appeal thing. As they, they figure they have to sell a, a movie in the American market, so they have to put that that level of something in there, or they're not going to get women to go to the theater with guys and buy. Yeah, popcorn. yeah, exactly. So Cheryl can Which see the movie. That's why it's there. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. <laughs>
Yeah, Cheryl didn't even like the movie anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, here's the here's the thing, right? Is is the book and radio play have a lot more going on, right? So yeah. they they had to kind of sort of fill it up with the things that they took out, and they probably would have been better served by putting some of those things in, I rather than adding new things completely, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they had to... They, also, the difference between the, this and the other versions is the other versions were designed for sequelizing, right? I mean, yes. there's there's five more books, depending on your reading of, of who wrote the last one. There's, you know, second, third, fourth, ver- fourth series of the radio plays, same, you know, those sorts of things. So you can go on and, and, and leave a lot of dangling plot threads, whereas here you never know if you're going to be able to do that. So you have to you have to tie things up in a nice, neat little bow at the end of the movie. If they didn't, they would have ended up like John Carter of Mars. <laughs> yeah, true. It was a nice bow, but not, not exactly perfect. Right. Because they, I mean, they do, they do tie things up. I mean, we, we come back to the fact that we, as you alluded to earlier, Matt, the most intelligent life form on earth was actually mice who were the, the ancient Magrathians and who had been living on the planet earth basically to observe humans who were part of the program to determine the ultimate question. And they reveal themselves at the very end and try to take Arthur's brain so that they can fulfill their ultimate destiny, which doesn't work out so well for them. Yeah. The, uh, you know, it, it it's funny because I was trying to think about the 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 fact that they are mice, and of course that goes back to something originally, in the, all the way in the beginning of the film, which said that humans were the third smartest species on the planet, with dolphins being two, and now we know that mice are the smartest because they are the original Magrathians. But again, why were they mice, and the other Magrathians, uh, you know, Slarty, Bartfast, and crew, humans? I guess, or I, it, it was kind of weird how it's, they. It, well, it's left out of the movie. Right, right. But the re- the reason, but the reason is in the book and the and the radio play is that is that they're Magrathians don't actually live in the same plane of reality as the rest of the universe. Okay, that's why they even have to go through the portal to get to Deep Thought is because they have to go enter the orig- the other reality. Right, right, right. Okay, and so the the mice is the form that the Magrathians take when they enter our reality. They're not actually mice, or maybe they are. I'm a little unclear on that part of it. Yeah. But How I think the improbability generator maybe made them mice. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I do think that the, the the funniest thing they they say is at the end when Arthur's about to squish them. Says, oh bollocks! <laughs> yes, <laughs> that that's the redeeming part of that scene. And, and then, as we said, they wrap things up with a, in a nice, neat little bow because the Vogons come back uh, and they they finally defeat them because Marvin uses the point of view gun on the Vogons, which makes them too <laughs> depressed to fight. Which is hilarious because he uses like the nuke option or whatever on it, which instead of shooting yes. one person, it like unleashes like a grenade and they all get affected by it. And all the Vogons become instantly manic depressive and, and just fall over with no will to live anymore. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that, right? So, so you have Marvin who has like no will towards his own existence, right? He gets shot in the head and he's effectively dead, but some reason he wills himself back to life. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Man. So there but was that... no real music in this movie, was there? 
Other than the Eagle song and So Long, Thanks for All the Fish. No, just those two songs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Y- yeah, and it's 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 Eagles in the movie. It's Pink Floyd, I think, in some of the other versions, right? Because it's he w- Douglas Adams was a big fan of both bands, so. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and of course, at the end, they drop the hint that they're going to a restaurant at the end of the universe, which is the second net, book. It's the second book, and right. it's there where they bump into Thor, but he doesn't play a role until further books. Yeah, uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Um, but if, if you ever get bored, I mean, if you see the movie, that's great. Just Google Marvin quotes; those are just hilarious. I've been, as we've been recording this, I've been looking at <laughs> some of the quotes, and he's just got some really good ones. Like, I've been talking to the main computer, and it hates me. <laughs> There's so, he's just got so many. It's just uh, we could we could do, we should have just done an hour, Ryan, of just saying Marvin quotes, just back and forth. That could get depressing, though. <laughs> that's that's my only concern. <laughs> uh, so if there, there if there are things to take away from this podcast, I think number one, something we have not mentioned is that you should always carry your towel with you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> which is one of the main pieces of advice that Ford has. Uh, and the other that I always live my life by is, is the words that are inscribed on the cover of the Hitchhiker's Guide, which is don't panic. <laughs> Very important. Yes, uh, yes. Which reminds me one of the good jokes about it is why the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the now the best-selling guide after the Galactica, Encyclopedia Galactica or whatever. And there were two main reasons, as I recall. One was because it said don't panic on the front, which was very reassuring to listener to readers. And second, it was slightly cheaper than the other book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to comment, say one other thing is that um, – I, I don't know if any of you remember the Infocom games, but this was the second most popular Infocom game ever made after their first game called Zork, right? <laughs> and and the original game was actually so so Douglas Adams was a big technology person, right? He is was actually famous uh, technology wise for one thing, and that was owning the first Macintosh in England. And he never oh, yeah. used another, he never used another computer except for a Macintosh from that point forward. So 1984 through 2001, he was a Mac owner. Yep. Um, and um, he was very into technology and especially computer games and what they brought. So he penned this computer game, which is actually a completely different original work starring the same characters based off of the original radio play. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it starts you at like you you wake up you go through the whole thing you ha- end up on the ship you meet Ford you know you hitchhike you go through the whole thing you go through the Vogon poetry reading <laughs> <laughs> and on and on and on and eventually you end up you know, saving the planet Earth just like the story it's pretty interesting um, the um, the other interesting is he, it's, I mean he even went out to write um, he wrote us he wrote a second series of novels that's that's basically was also done as a miniseries. Uh, by the BBC after his death, uh, which is Dirk Gently's holistic uh, detective agency. Did I get that right? Yes. <laughs> which, which incidentally, I have never read, but I've always felt that the second book was my perhaps favorite book title ever, which is Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. I don't know why. I've just always been attracted to that title, but not enough to actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, and uh, he and his other uh, famous game was. Um, 
what is it? Uh, it's it's a Starship game. I can't remember what it is, but it's he he. So he was very into the whole gaming thing. He worked with Lucas Films on a number of games. Another Star Wars connection. So it's a big thing for him. Yeah, I think I think looking at the movie, I mean, I, I think we established that it, it's not the greatest movie um, that was ever made by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still entertaining. If you've ever seen any or experienced any of the other mediums, the radio, the book. The movies, or the TV uh, series. I think you'll enjoy the book. If you enjoy this kind of British humor, you'll. Oh, sorry, you'll enjoy the movie. If you enjoy the you know British humor, this sort of thing, you'll enjoy the movie. If you're the kind of guy who finds you know smart aleck humor funny, I think this will be right up your alley. And if anything else, it's a great way to spend you know like a Saturday afternoon watching. I think it's it's entertaining. It's not great, but it's entertaining. And Women love this movie. People like Cheryl just can't get enough of it. I hate this movie. I would rather watch a Beverly Hills Trauma Marathon than this. <laughs> Ouch. Oh. Oof. All right. Ouch. Well, it's it's worth seeing on DVD, certainly. And considering that, I mean, it's probably like five bucks at Walmart these days. Two bucks you on know. Amazon. Not there bad. you go. Two dollars. There you go. It's worth two dollars. I'll it's give it rental, that. It's a rental on Amazon for two dollars for 48 hours. And based on Todd reminding me about the awesome things on uh, on the DVD, uh, I think I'll have to pick that up. I wonder, Todd, actually, now that I think about it, I wonder if the Blu-ray has anything more special. Assuming it is on Blu-ray, I'm just assuming. I, I don't know if it's been released on Blu-ray. but Yeah, I don't think it is. <gasps> but, I mean, Disney is since Disney now owns the Touchstone Library distribution, it is going to go through uh, at some point. Right. To make, they got to make money anyway. There you go. All right, so Matt, based on that, what would you what would you rate this one on a scale of one to five? Oof, I would have to give it a three. Um, like I said, it's not a great movie. I I enjoy the other material much more than this movie. I think it's 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 decent. It, it's it's uh, loyal to the material, and um, it's I think it's worth seeing. But it's not the best movie ever since. I'm going to give it a three. I think that's fair for what it is. I think so. All right, Cheryl. I think uh, what you're going to say a one. Half star. Uh, Half star. Cheryl, come on. I'm sorry, Matt. I really hated this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really did. Okay. Uh, all right, all right. We'll see how Brie feels. Like I said, we'll, this, Brie will be watching this as well, and this will be on our blog, and so we'll see how she feels. Maybe, maybe she'll feel differently, and maybe I was alone in my feelings. There you go. All right, Todd, what about you? What do you think? So I, I think for sure, I tend to agree with Matt. I think for especially if you're a fan and have not seen the movie, you should see the movie just so you get it under your belt kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, it, the humor is, it means clearly, I mean, I'm a big fan of the whole British humor thing. I mean, I, I, Black Adder was one of my favorite shows ever <laughs> and uh and this is this is right on in that in that genre and everything like that for for the humor so i i, I just enjoy it for that it's it's all sight gags i mean it and and that's really good because like you know matt you're a really big fan of the radio show so you've listened to it a lot but i think that it's it brings a whole different aspect when you actually can see things going on and there might not have anything to do with any prior work but they're still funny because they fit Yes. And so I, I also kind of sort of feel it's right in the middle there at a three. So I just it, not. 
if anything else, you should watch just so you can understand a, a lot of internet jokes that are out there. <laughs> so if yes. you're on the internet, you understand memes, and uh, there's a dozen jokes I can think of that are, that have origins to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So that way, at the very least, you'll sound more informed to be in on the jokes that people are saying. Exactly. Exactly. I, I would I would go with you guys. I'd give it a three. I think, uh, like you said, it's 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 a good, funny movie. It's not necessarily doesn't have. They try to put some depth into it, but it doesn't doesn't exactly come off like we talked about. So, it, but like Matt said, in order to understand all those jokes that your friends have been talking about for years, you need to watch it and you need to you need to enjoy it, and you'll start understanding things. But if you really want to get into Hitchhiker's Guide, I recommend the books or or now the radio plays that I'm going to go s- seek out now that Matt has told me about them. Oh, they're awesome. I did it, uh, Ryan, actually, as I was driving to Atlanta one dime, we listened to it the entire way up. Ryan's from Atlanta, so that's why I mentioned it. Um, yes, and um, I listened to the entire way up, and they're, they're incredibly entertaining. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you enjoy the movie, check out the – read the book. I never read the book. I need to do that. I own the book. I just never read it. Um, but check out the radio, the TV. They're much better. Uh, special thanks to our super guest star, Mr. Matt Hotchberg. Thanks, Matt, for coming on board. My pleasure. Uh, great to be able to talk with you all finally and uh this is a, a fun movie so i'm glad i was able to be invited on here and ser- sorry cheryl for making you watch it so until next week you can keep in touch with us you can let us know what you think of this show go over to disneyfilmproject.com and you can leave a comment on the show notes there you can tweet us at disfilmproject or you can go over to facebook and search for disney film project and let us know what you think of the show there you can keep in touch with all of us on our various and sundry blogging platforms. You can check out Todd and myself over at touringplans.com. Check out Bree's attractions blogs, my film blogs, and Todd's chief technical wizardry over at disneydrivenlife.com. And you can keep up with Cheryl's travails trying to keep this podcast together at about.me slash Cheryl P3. And also, don't forget to check out Magic 24.7. Listen to the box office report sponsored by us here at Disney Film Project. So go over to magic247radio.com and listen to that show so you can check out the box office report. So until next week, folks, keep it watching the movies. Mostly harmless. Ever heard of a place? I think it's called Norway. That was one of mine. I got an award for it. Space says the introduction to the guide is big, really big. You won't just you just won't believe how vastly usually mind-boggling big it is, and so on. What's to do if you find yourself stuck with no hope of rescue? Consider yourself lucky that the life has been good to you so far. Alternatively, if life hasn't been good to you so far, which given your present circumstances seems more likely, consider yourself lucky that it won't be troubling you much longer. No, that's perfectly normal paranoia. Everyone in the universe gets that. So long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> <laughs>